for our study once again this morning. We'll be going to the other Gospels as well. Christmas time is it's a wonderful time in one way at least regard regardless of how um, it may be in other ways but it brings us back to Christ as the forefront of all things uh, it brings us back to the truth of the virgin birth and that Christ came and he is king of all um, so I know some of us may know one person in our life who just has nothing to do with Christmas, claiming to be holy or whatever it may be. It's more likely that they are more of a Grinch than anything else, quite honestly. If that, these hymns don't point us to Christ and at this time of year ought to point us to Christ and we ought not to let the culture hijack that from us. Um, This time of year, Christmas, is a reminder of who Christ is and what he has done for us. So let us be mindful of that. We find ourselves in our study where the officers have Jesus in custody. They desire to put him to death. And if this was to happen, it had to happen quickly. It had to happen before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. During that time, these proceedings were not allowed. So they had to do this and they had to do it quick. Jesus was brought before Annas, who was the head of the high priest family. Then Jesus was brought before Caiaphas to be tried by the Sanhedrin. When they could convict Jesus of blasphemy, then he could be brought forth before Pilate who had to endorse the execution. Pilate transferred Jesus to Herod. Then Pilate offered the crowd to have Jesus released. Then ultimately, Pilate agreed to have him crucified. In our study before us this morning, in verse 25, or verse 12 through 24, rather, and following, We have two events that are simultaneous. These are going on at the same time. Inside the palace of the high priest and one in the courtyard. In the trial of uh, that we have, this trial, so to speak, of what they put Jesus through, and we have Peter's denials. So a trial and a denial. Denial times three, actually. The only innocent party in all of this was the Lord Jesus Christ. So we consider our first point this morning. I'll ask the Lord for prayer and be poised, be ready to go to other texts as well for us to try to get the whole picture or more of the picture of what is going on. Our first point will be a seemingly subtle statement, a seemingly subtle statement. And we find that statement from Peter um, from the get-go. Let me pray for my help this morning from God. God, I pray that you would give me power from the Holy Spirit 
that I would not fear man at all, that I would only fear you, and I would care only what you think. Lord, I pray you would shake hearts to the core that need to be shooken up, that you would comfort those who need it. All things for the glory of God. Amen. Look at verse... Let's just look at verse 12 of John 18. Verse 12. Again, we've been here, but we'll look at it again. So the Roman cohort and the commander of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to to die on behalf of the people. All right, so we have this statement. We have the uh, soldiers taking him to Annas first. Annas was the high priest from AD 6 to 15. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was high priest that year at this time. So if you think of this as the former high priest and the acting high priest, um, the former high priest still had all of this clout, but then you have the actual acting high priest. It's kind of as we would think of it in our vernacular, the, the president and the former president. You would see the president, you'd say, Mr. President. Uh, you see the current, a current president, and you would say, Mr. President. Here he is to be the high priest, and you'd say the former high priest, this is the high priest. So it should not be confusing for us. It can be when we read through it a little bit, but nevertheless. But who else was there? Well, Simon Peter and another disciple. That's how John references this other disciple who was there. Uh, This is uh, most likely John. Uh, We cannot be 100% dogmatic, but we see this uh, all over the place. Another disciple considered to be John. Um, But we'd ask, how would John know the high priest? Um, John was no uh, statesman, so to speak. He was not in uh, in the entourage to be there with the high priest, but somehow he knew the high priest. And how would the high priest know this fisherman would know John? We can't be for sure, but... This is how John refers to himself previously. We saw that in chapter 13, uh, verse 23 through 25, the, the disciple. And this account here, when we read it, it looks like, it sounds like an eyewitness account. So it sounds as John was, this is John, uh, uh, that he was there. And we know later in the gospel, in chapter 19, verse 26, <clears throat> that John refers to himself there with Jesus. Verse 26, When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his household. So we see that indeed that was John there again. And then we have another account of in chapter 20, verse 1 through 4, of the Gospel of John. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. This is the empty tomb. This is after Jesus rose from the dead. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple, who is John, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, we have, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. 
So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. So here they were running to the tomb. And um, John included this in here, verse 4, which is somewhat comical. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran, a, ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And there's a meme, and I love it, and I had to see it again, of two men running. And Peter saying, don't you dare write it, John, don't you dare write it. And John's writing it. The other disciple went forth and was faster than Peter. So John was sure to include that in his writing as well. But on a serious note, Simon Peter was following Jesus, but he was following at a distance. But John was there as well, this disciple, I'm just going to call him Call him John, known to the high priest. If you're known to the high priest, you're, you're getting in. You're, you're going to get in. But Peter was left outside. Let's, just, let's look at this, verse 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the high court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door Outside, So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So Peter left outside, but the other disciple, John, spoke to the doorkeeper, and Peter is allowed to get in at that point. So John had some kind of weight or carried a little bit of clout. At least he could get Peter in. But this brings us to really the first denial in verse 17, to the, to the first denial, this seemingly subtle statement right? It's, this is a, a way bigger statement than um, something that just popped into my mind when you go to an amusement park or whatever, and you have a, a certain height requirement or whatever it is, and you, you cannot lie about that. You know, if you don't meet the height requirement, you're not getting on the ride or whatever it is. But some may be tempted to, we're getting into the amusement park, oh, it's 13 and older, uh, you, you, it costs 15 bucks, 12 and younger, it costs, uh, it's free. And here you have a child who's just turned 13 a few days ago. Some would tell the child to lie. You know, no one's going to really ask. Or if they ask, you know, you're just 12 still. Subtle statement. Oh, it's just a subtle thing. Who cares? You just turned 13 a few days ago. Problem is, it's not true. That's the problem. Problem is, it's lying. But here we have something on a much greater scale. This first denial, verse 17. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Casual remark from a slave girl. She is not saying here, I need to find out if this guy's a disciple of Jesus because I'm going to tell everyone here so they can get him too. It's a casual remark. You're not, too, you're not one of his disciples too, are you? She knew John was a disciple when he asked Peter, uh, when he asked Peter to, uh, to get in. She knew that John was who he was. The verse gives us um, that clarity. 
She was no threat of violence for Peter at all. So the easiest access to enter, to get through that door and not cause any kind of situation at all or any kind of disagreement, to raise any eyebrows, was to deny that he was a disciple of Jesus Christ and to agree with the girl. That was the easiest way to get in, to deny Jesus Christ. Very subtle statement. I am not. The path of least resistance starts with an outwardly casual statement that would get more bold and very quickly as the night went on. Remember what Peter said earlier? Lord, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 37, I'll just read it. Lord, I will lay down my life for you. Well, it doesn't sound like he's doing that at this point. I will never deny you, he says. John Calvin says, Now at the voice of a single maid, that voice unaccompanied by threatening, he is confounded and throws down his arms. Such is a demonstration of the power of man. Frailty of man common to all of us, Calvin says. Do we not continually tremble at the rustling of a falling leaf, a false appearance of danger which was still distant? This is what made Peter tremble. And we are not, are we not every day led away from Christ by childlike absurdities? End quote. So she did not ask Peter if he was an enemy of Judaism. She did not say to him, are you going to be part of this interaction that they were thinking may happen? She only asked if he was the disciple of Jesus. Are you with him too? Are you a disciple too? Or you're not one, are you? Peter responded with an immediate denial. Now, Peter could have been thinking that this was his easy access to get into the courtyard. Who knows what was in his mind? Only God knows. Doesn't make it right. Yet, he said it. And once you say something, or once you deny something, it's not always easy to correct it, is it? As Peter distanced himself from Jesus, he was comfortable sitting around the fire, warming himself with others. Verse 18. Look at that. After, after he says, I am not, now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. He was comfortable. This reminds us of Psalm 1-1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Peter was taking this initial step. He was hanging out with the enemies of Christ, warming himself after he just denied Jesus verbally. It's the right chapter, 18. James Boyce says, This is no miserable specimen chose. 
chosen from among the ranks of Christ's worst followers. This is his best. Yet it is precisely this one who falls, not only dreadfully, but speedily and with slight provocation. And yet we're reminded that Jesus indeed restored Peter later. So we have first and foremost a seemingly subtle statement. I am not one of his to get in the door. But then we have trickle-down denial. Secondly, trickle-down denial. Yes, I like that phrase, trickle-down. Using it again, trickle-down denial. Secondly, from a distance, Peter was following him. From a distance. <clears throat> Luke 22, verse 54 says, I'll just read this. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But... Peter was following at a distance. The spiritual implications for that are profound for us. First, Peter was confident in himself. Overconfident. We've seen this in his life. We've seen this by the things he has said. Peter said he would lay down his life for Jesus Jesus indeed corrected him rather quickly. Peter thought highly of himself while comparing himself to other disciples. I surely will not deny you. Others may deny you, but I surely will not. This proud disposition that can be named among us at times. That we think that we've arrived in some level. Oh, I wouldn't do that. They may, but me, no way. That should not be our disposition as well, at at all. Richard Phillips says, this reminds us not to, listen to this, this reminds us not to treat lightly those trials we have not yet faced. Again, and this is a statement to write down, a quote to write down, to put on a post-it note, to put on your mirror, to put in your car, whatever it is, not to treat lightly those trials that we have not yet faced, thinking, I'll get through that, no problem. Not me, I'll be, I'll be all set going through that. Peter miscalculated his strength of will and courage, and therefore he trusted himself instead of reposing and trusting in God's strength and faithfulness. When Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, he meant what he said. And that is true for us as well. So Peter was confident in himself, thought highly of himself compared to others. He miscalculated his strength that was found in himself. Instead of taking heed that he did not fall. So Peter was uh, confident in himself. Yes, overconfident. Secondly, he was coming from a place of prayerlessness instead of prayerfulness. Peter failed to pray. He, he, he simply failed to pray. 
while the Savior was pouring out his heart before the Father, Peter was sleeping in the garden. We cannot be equipped for spiritual warfare while sleeping. And you cannot be equipped for this week if you were to dare to fall asleep during this sermon. And shame on you if you do, unless you're elderly or have a medical condition. Then we have to define what elderly is. You know who you are and you know who you're not. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, let's just go there because we need to hear this once again. Because 2024 is afoot, it is, it is upon us. And it very well, there may be a, a season coming up in 2024, maybe we've heard of this thing, uh, where it may get very ugly in our society. Um, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, 18 is our focus, but let's read through this. The armor of God. Be reminded of this, okay? Because think of Peter, prayerlessness, and we need prayerfulness. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in verse 18, with all prayer, praying at all times and being faithful in prayer and being disciplined in prayer and guarding your prayer life with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. That is the encouragement for us. And we learn from Peter what not to do. So, Peter was confident in himself, yes, overconfident. And secondly, he was coming from a place of prayerlessness instead of prayerfulness. And thirdly, Peter followed Christ from a distance. He followed Jesus from a distance. There was too much room between him and his Savior. Now, in this instance, we understand as we, uh, as we turn back to, to John, or we may go to Matthew next, so the, the, G, Peter was following Jesus at a significant distance, and there was a danger there because of the soldiers and because of what was happening we can understand that on a practical level. Yes, he, he wasn't standing right there with him and saying, hey, you know, arrest me too. He was following at a distance. He, didn't, he wasn't running away. He was following. 
at a distance. So the spiritual implications of this, though, are important for us. Following Christ at a distance is a cause for many spiritual dangers and many spiritual failures. It's an example that we can really grapple with. You go to the store with your child, you say, stay with me, stay close to me. You watch me and keep your eyes on me. And then they, you go down to the end of the aisle and the child goes in the next aisle and you go that way. Next thing you know, lost. Next thing you know, they're making the announcement on the, the uh, speaker. Too much room between the child and the parent as far as following. Following Christ as a, at a distance is dangerous. We would ask what... What interests do we have that's more than Christ? Uh, Things of this world or or things of the Lord? We follow other things of this world very closely. Or we're prone to or we can. Some would say, I follow politics very closely. Or I follow sports very closely. Well, okay, Christian, do you follow Jesus very closely? That's the question. Following Jesus at a distance presents oneself open to attacks, failures, sin, and a denial of Christ as Peter did. So Peter, again, was confident in himself as he should not have been. He came from a place of prayerlessness and he followed Christ at a distance instead of following on his heels, as it were. And then verse 18 of John. Again, the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a a fire. It was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also standing there warming himself. So everyone was warming themselves. Peter was warming himself. Jesus did not have that luxury to warm himself. He was bound, and he was standing there, and they were verbally assaulting him and getting ready to physically assault him. Peter was standing there, although, with those who stand against his Lord. And he was standing with them. The question for us in the title of the sermon this morning is, Where do you stand? When asked about your belief, are you with Jesus? Are you a disciple of his? Where, where, what is your answer? What, what do you say? Or do you have to think about it because you get nervous? Oh, fear of man, what is this person going to think of me? Or when you have to make a decision to either be pragmatic or to be obedient to the Lord. What do we do? Where do we stand? When confronted for following Jesus at a distance or trusting in yourself, and your own heart, rather than the Word of God. When you realize your prayer life is not what it could be or should be, what do we do? Where will we stand? I read a recent article, or recently I read an article, about the process of the Supreme Court coming, in, coming to a, um, a recent, more recent decision that was very well known. 
and it's a long article. I don't know, it was like 20 pages. And when you read these articles, sometimes you just want like four paragraphs. And sometimes they, they give the title of the article, and it's hard to understand, even in the title, what do they mean? Are they for or against this thing? Because it says not this and this and blah, blah, blah. But I was reading this article because they give you kind of the behind the scenes uh, of what took place, of how these justices came to their decision. When one thought, uh, when three of them thought one was going to go this way, but this one pulled back and they were right, they would do other writings here to try to sway one and they would meet on the side and talk to see how, how a person would be. Are they going to be on our side or not? When it comes to that decision, when it comes to that vote, where will you stand? No matter the process that they went through, these justices, wavering by some stalwart and and steadfast by others, you know where they are on things, you have no question where they are, yet when it comes time for that, when they have to cast their vote, you know where they stand. How much more should this world know where we stand when it comes to Jesus Christ and the Word of God? There should be no question. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Verse 19 in John. Verse 19 in John 18. It's interesting, the order of things. He asks... The, the, the high priest, a question about Jesus, about his disciples and his teaching. Okay. So Hendrickson makes a point that the ordering of topics, the dis- disciples over doctrine, is typical of the world's way of thinking. How many folks are following you? Or how many are you influencing rather than what are you saying? He was far more interested, Hendrickson says, in the success of Jesus and how large was his following than in the truthfulness of what Jesus was saying and the untruthfulness of what they had been teaching. So they were more concerned with what the people were believing and following Jesus or following Jesus rather than the truth of what Jesus was teaching. So we see with Peter, there was a trickle-down denial. started slow, and then it, it will progress. And then thirdly, we have truth versus treason. Truth versus treason. So when Jesus is asked the question, he responds. I've spoken openly to the world, says Jesus. Verse 20, 21. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews came together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I have said. So Jesus, being interrogated by Annas, a powerful former high priest, so when he refers to the high priest, or when the high priest is referred to here in this text, it seems that Annas is... being referred to the former high priest and then they bring in the Caiaphas it seemed because Caiaphas was getting ready the attempt was to accuse Jesus of sedition 
of starting an insurrection to accuse him of, of blasphemy as well. This sedition and insurrection would be against the Roman authorities. And they would think, well, if we can get him on this, the Romans would have no problem. No problem. We had to, remember, they had to do this quick. Passover was coming. The feasts were coming. They, they, were, they had to do this now. Yet Jesus taught openly for three years. Numerous witnesses could have been brought forward to summarize what Jesus taught. Eyewitnesses of what he did, of what he said, of how he helped people, and how the Pharisees were unable to debate him. They couldn't debate him, no matter what. They could come up with anything, and it doesn't matter who they were. He would disarm them, no problem, in a drop of a hat. Time and time again. And his teachings were never once able to be refuted. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. And that, Christian, is what we are to do as well. To speak openly to the world. That we follow Jesus Christ. That this is the word of God. That if without Christ you are dead in your sin. And you will face him on judgment day. Jesus did not shy away from preaching the truth in the midst of opposition, and nor shall we. Paul did not, nor the rest. And as well, we use careful discernment, as I was reminded of recently, that we do not cast pearls before swine. Jesus is the pearl of great price. So we must use discernment, yet we must be bold. This is not a time for spiritual wimpiness. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 14, I'll read this for you as well, as I was reminded of this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Either easy times are coming for the Christian, or hard times are coming for the Christian as regards to persecution. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Think about what the Word of God says, and we can say, wow, I wonder where we'd land on that argument. Many of you may have heard of the gentleman, street preacher recently out west, who was preaching and got shot in the head. As far as I know now, he's out of the ICU. Praise God for that. Last I heard yesterday. We must be bold. I was reminding a young man yesterday that we need manly men. We don't need men in skirts. And we see that in the highest levels. Men dressed as women. It's disturbing. It's disgusting. It should not be. We need, though, men of the book 
We need manly men of the word of God who will stand in opposition against this culture and will stand filled with the Holy Spirit, come whatever come. And that comes through prayer, it comes through the study of the word of God, and it comes with pleading with God to give you the strength to endure. It will not come naturally or by osmosis. Will not happen. You will be like Peter rather than Paul. A more full account of what took place during this trial is found in Matthew chapter 26. Let's look at that, please. Turn there, Matthew 26. We're going to look at several verses. We'll make a few observations here. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 57. And we'll see, see this here. Those who had seized Jesus, okay, chapter 26, verse 57, had led him away to Caiaphas. See, here we have Caiaphas now, the high priest. We were just looking at Annas and, and John. Now here's Caiaphas, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Caiaphas had the time to get them together, and here they are. Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. So think of this now. Remember, we saw Peter standing in the seat of scoffers. Now here he is sitting with them, sitting among them. Psalm 1, all over the place. Um, Now let's look at verse, let's continue on here. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. See, they weren't looking for true testimony, false testimony. They did not find any, verse 60, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward. So many false witnesses came forward to try to, uh, to get him. Um, but then others, later on, two came forward, verse 60, and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it these men had, are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. Caiaphas here, he was desperate, challenging Jesus to declare himself the Son of God and the Messiah. Do you not answer? Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. There's another Jesus saying out of his own mouth there who he is as he references Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Notice the response of the high priest and others in 65, verse 65 here. The high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. 
What further do we need? Do we need to have a witness? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Now, I'm going to read this uh, again from uh, Richard Phillips' commentary, but it's important for us to understand uh, that this trial was no ordinary trial. Three things arise from even Jesus' brief hearing before Annas. The first is that these were illegal hearings. The breaches of Jewish legal proceedings are too numerous to be cited in detail. Most prominent were these. Jesus was arrested without proper charges. Based on the witness of an accomplice who had been bribed, Jesus was tried at night, whereas the law required daytime proceedings for capital cases, and contrary to the law, the proceedings were held on the day before a feast. No testimony in favor of the accused was sought or permitted. Jesus was directly examined and called upon to testify against himself, and Jesus was convinced, excuse me, convicted by unanimous vote, which the Jewish legal rule, rules considered evidence of a biased court. All of these were gross violations, but the last one is most pertinent. The Jewish system of law emphasized mercy and called on courts to do everything possible to exonerate the accused. The Jews' trial of Jesus was illegal precisely because it was conducted with no other aim than to unjustly convict Jesus and to put him to death. It was murder. Second, Phillips continues, the Jewish trial was cruel. So it was illegal and it was cruel. John notes the officer of the court striking Jesus, probably with the flat of his hand. Cruelty is usually performed by cowards. And so it was that Jesus was struck on the face while his hands were bound. So think of that in and in, in itself. Jesus was bound and this man who thought he was a tough guy slaps him in the face. It's just like that cowards picking on those who cannot defend themselves. And here Jesus was bound and we know that what he could have done. This was just the beginning of his cruel abuse. Yet Jesus meekly submitted to it all. How easily might Christ have consumed the insolent official with fire or withered the striking hand. Yet this was the hour of his meek submission to injustice and cruelty. Though Jesus responded with words counseling justice and truth, he made no objection to his mistreatment. As Isaiah had foretold, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that has led to the slaughter. One more. Above all, the Jewish trial was unholy. So it was illegal, it was cruel, and it was unholy. This appears not only in the ironic verdict of blasphemy upon the true Son of God, but also in the entire treatment of Jesus the Christ. Here, Annas represents the whole of apostate Judaism. Seated as the heir of all the old covenant leaders, the culmination of centuries of divine blessings, 
mighty deliverances, and covenant privileges, Isaiah's high priest, excuse me, Israel's high priest, now greets the long-awaited Messiah. In light of the Scripture's long anticipation of the coming Savior and King, we ache to see Israel's leader fall on his face in adoration and worship. We want to see that. Instead, Jesus is despised and beaten, and every trick in the book is employed to condemn him to death. And J.C. Ryle notes, he had only to command the confusion of his enemies, and they would at once have been confounded. Above all, he was one who knew full well that Annas and Caiaphas and all their companions would one day stand before his judgment seat and receive an eternal sentence. He knew all these things and yet condescended to be treated this way without resistance. And he did this for us. And Peter, with his seemingly subtle statement, and then we see that begins a process of trickle-down denial. And then we have truth or treason. Where will we stand? And then we have, fourthly, talking or trusting. Talking or trusting. We have three denials. As we consider John again. Verse 25 through 27. Three denials. Should have told you to keep your finger there in Matthew 26. We're going back there. Or your writing utensil. In verse 25 and 27, we see this in John. Again, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied and said, I am not. And then one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. This shows Peter's fear of man. His fear of man. He was into talking, and he was all talk at this point. He wasn't trusting. We see this in more detail. Again, I said uh, keep your finger there late, um, later on, but uh, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 69. Let's go there again. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and his servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. So here it's more, there's more emphasis, there's more, uh, more to it, there's more teeth to it. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you are too one of them. For even the way you talk gives you away. His Galilean accent. Then he began to curse and swear. I do not 
know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said. Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. And we read earlier in Luke, I won't have you turn there. We read earlier, though, <clears throat> that when Jesus was standing there and Peter denied him, the Lord turned and looked at Peter after the third denial. He looked at Peter. This is Luke twenty-two sixty-one, just for reference. Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Now he told him before a rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. He could see Peter. So what does that tell us? Peter could see Jesus. This wasn't, he wasn't doing this out in a way that, oh, he'll never hear me. No, he could see him. And he looked at him. So there's much we can learn from Peter's denials. Again, follow the Lord at a close distance, right on his heels. Secondly, do not be confident in yourself, but instead be reliant upon the Lord. Not confident in your flesh, not confident in what you can do, but instead be reliant upon the Lord. Also, we are to cultivate a healthy fear of God in our lives. The fear of the Lord will keep you from a multitude of sin. We are to watch over our hearts with all diligence, for from it flow the, the springs of life. That's what it says in, in Proverbs verse, chapter 4, verse 23. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Watch over your walk. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. 1 Corinthians 10 and 12. And Romans 13, verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Know what Paul, notice what Paul tells us to do. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, rely on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be this person of prayer and following Jesus Christ. And then make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. with all of the various things that happened during this trial and Peter's denials, why does John leave out much of the details that the other Gospels include? Another disciple, I mean, that's how John describes himself. John was right there. Why not give us all the details? What everyone was, was, was wearing, all the details. Why the trial and denial all included in 15 verses? It is meant for our reminder and our focus on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It's a reminder for us that it's in Christ alone in whom we can trust ultimately. Man will fail us all day long. And it's a reminder for us in him alone is found righteousness. And it's in him alone who exercises true justice. And it's a reminder for us as well that Christ alone is where salvation is found. 
So the question to consider once again is where do you stand? Following Jesus Christ or against Jesus Christ? Everyone in here is in one of these two categories or camps or walks. Following Jesus Christ, that means you, you have been convicted of your sin. You have repented of your sin. You are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. You are following after him. You are not perfect, but you have been forgiven. You're a child of God. You, you say, I stand with Jesus. You are in his kingdom right now. And you have, you have been shown grace and mercy and you show others grace and mercy. Or you are against Jesus Christ. You won't admit your sin. You will not repent of your sin. You trust in your own wicked heart. You are a child of the devil. You're in the kingdom of Satan. You stand with Judas Iscariot rather than Jesus Christ. And you will be shown judgment and wrath on that day unless you repent and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of your soul. You must answer that question in your heart this day where you stand. And Christians, we know where we stand, but we have to say, God, I need your help and your strength to continue on standing for the Lord Jesus Christ, walking after the Lord Jesus Christ, and relying on the Lord Jesus Christ, not on our own strength. And I pray for us, we'll have the time of reflection of what we heard and then I will give the benediction. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for uh, your word and for these reminders of Peter's life and how subtle Denials can be and it can lead someone to a place they do not want to be. And we thank you, God, that in your grace and in your mercy that you restored Peter. You pointed him back to, to righteousness. You pointed him back to, to yourself. You showed him grace and mercy and Lord, let that be our disposition as well to others and to the lost. We must be, stand boldly and, and we must ask them where do they stand when it comes to Christ. And we, let us do this from a position of compassion for them because they will face judgment and your wrath without you and without them turning to you. Lord, as we continue on in this season, let us be reminded once again that Christ is everything to us. In Jesus' name, amen.